I think people would come back to our industry. I think people would realize there's something special here. It's fun. It's exciting. Uh, it, 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 it changes your life in many ways. I mean, you grow up in this business because you're working with people. And that's the hardest thing in, 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 in life. Okay, ready? This is it. This is the show. What's with the pineapple? A brand new podcast from the Michigan Restaurant and Lodging Association. Pineapples don't grow in Michigan. No, not native to Michigan. Let me write that down. Putting a, a hospitality spin on what exactly is going on in Lansing. Shed some light on the industry specifically in Michigan. I think we're going to have some good guests. What is with the pineapple? What's with the industry? What's going on in Michigan? We can edit this if that's not right, right? Okay, Emily, we are back. It's episode six. Okay, we had our April board meeting yesterday. That's not exactly exciting news, except for we had our Pro Start kids, the culinary champions uh, from Sanilac, and our restaurant management team in from Plymouth Canton for a luncheon. They designed the area to, to fit the motif of what the restaurant business team designed and won the state competition with. And the culinary team from Sanilac did an excellent job Amazing. preparing a meal for our board of directors. And then we had several elected officials in to participate so they can get an experience of what ProStart is all about, uh, as well as some people from the Department of Labor and Economic Opportunity. So ProStart is great. It is great and, and warms your heart to see the kids doing the job. But when we can... Sh- showcase them in a way, I think, that demonstrate that this is the first step in, in uh, a many rung ladder of opportunity within this industry. I, I think I think we had a good day yesterday to making making that point clear. And a lot of people, a lot of, a lot of senators were walking away saying, do you think they would open a restaurant in downtown Lansing? Because I think it would be the best restaurant we have. We can make that happen. Yeah. Well, maybe, maybe that's something to work on. Put a pin in that. That's, that's something for next year. Noted. Um, okay, so our guest that we're bringing on today is Wesley Pecula from Buddy's Pizza. Oh, I'm so excited about this. Listeners, as if we haven't spoken about pizza or Detroit-style pizza in, in particular enough, we have gone to the source, the origin uh, of Detroit-style pizza, and we will hear from the, the definitive authority uh, on it. And so I'm excited to have that interview. It'll be a good one. Okay, moving into current events, Pineapple Express, it's here to stay, that title, despite any and all arguments. Um, The Restaurant Leadership Conference happened or is happening this week in Phoenix, the theme of a path forward, which is timely and relevant. What's happening there right now, Justin? Well, a lot of interesting data being shared about what the future of the industry looks like and, and a lot of that transition. And if you're an operator and you're listening, you know this. The transition from on-premise dining on the restaurant side to uh, to carry out and delivery is pronounced. They they the stat that's just it, it's embedded in my head, and I want to talk to our guest about this today, is that pre-pandemic of the 150 largest chain restaurants, two thirds of their sales were dining. Two thirds, and this is two years ago. Now, and not during the peak of the pandemic, but now. That number is 38%. That means the overwhelming majority of sales are going to off-premise consumption. People are getting food to go, even in dine-in restaurants, uh, and they're getting it delivered to their homes in in, in percentages and numbers that we've never seen before. And so what does that mean long-term? And is that a a trend that is going to find its way scaling back from 38% to two-thirds, or have we made a permanent change 
in the industry forever. And I think, I think the latter is going to be more true. I'm not sure we'll stay at 38%, but it feels, it feels dicey that we're going to get back to, to 66%. And so what does that mean for the workforce side of this industry? What does that mean for the real estate side of this, of this industry as footprints are likely to be smaller, not larger going forward for dining opportunities? So fascinating there. A lot of talk on inflation, uh, obviously, as well. Uh, Is that happening? That's, that's, I hear that's happening. That's in, okay. New sources say, reliable new sources say, eight and a half percent jump in the month of March exceeded even the scary number that was anticipated for the month. So uh, that is sending consumers into a different mindset. I feel like we are we're we are moving in narratives very quickly from the post pandemic. We have a whole lot of cash flow, and what are we going to do with it? Let's go spend it. To inflation anxiety starting to set in. To recession mindset coming in the non too distant, not too distant future. And what is that going to mean for the demand side in this industry? Are people going to start scaling back ordering it? And that's going to impact this industry in different ways. I, I think it will more likely impact the, the top tier because people will, will downgrade in different shifts within the industry of, of where they get their restaurant food. And one stat we like to put out there, that's a good sign for the restaurant industry is as bad as inflation has been, it is better on the restaurant side than it has been for your grocery bill at home. So year over year, those numbers are at 10% for groceries. And man, after our last trip to fresh time, I'm feeling that it is 10% year over year is astronomical. It is slightly better on the restaurant side, 6.9% year over year inflation for restaurants. So listen, it is cheaper to go get some of that carry out right now than it is to uh, go buy some groceries at the store. So great opportunity to, to plug the industry in that way. But you know, again, I, I think there's some growing concern about where the consumer mindset is going to be three, six, and nine months from now. Another major trend right now, obviously, we've talked about this a couple of times uh, on this podcast, labor organizing specifically within this industry is on the rise. We had aligned public strategies earlier this year when it felt uh, like you could feel a trend starting. And I remember us being aghast that somewhere in the ballpark of 30, 35 Starbucks across the country were in some process of organizing, uh, had filed paperwork and and we're seeking to be uh, organized as a labor force at, at 30 locations. That number is almost 200 now, 200 Starbucks in some process of organizing. There have been 17 elections and 16 of them have all gone towards moving towards organizing. So it is a trend that is scary. If you're in this industry, it's moving quickly. It is not immune to, to Michigan. I, I think of the nearly 200 uh, locations, 12 of them. 12 of those Starbucks are in Michigan. I think it's interesting where they are. They are concentrated. Half of them are concentrated in a small window in Ann Arbor. Uh, and so there is a university-oriented theme there. A couple more in the Flint area. Uh, and, then, and then two here actually in the Lansing area. But it's interesting to see that concentration in a university town or in, often in university towns which is why it was interesting that Maru Sushi is, is undergoing similar issues with its workforce striking uh, in Kalamazoo, right next to that, that Western high. Michigan, right next to that Western Michigan uh, campus. And so it is a trend that is alarming in the speed by which it is changing the industry, something we are focused on, laser focused and, and top of mind uh, every single day at the association and, and trying to be a resource to our members so they understand how, how they can best be prepared and, and frankly, prevent if possible, this type of an outcome. Emily, where, 
what, what's a good plug since you love to do plugs for the association that we should be considering for, for those listeners. We do have an upcoming uh, educational event, Industry Insights, coming to Troy on May 9th. And one of those topics is going to be labor organizing in this industry, as we've seen it, as you said, across the country, but very specifically impacting Michigan operators and operators who are members of ours as well. So we will be having a session on that. And it's not an educational session that we, you know, we've talked about it on this podcast, but we haven't done a ton of articles or webinars as MRLA on this topic. So that's really an area to get some insight and get some of your direct questions answered before it comes to you or if it if it already has started rumbling. So May 9th. Space still available. Okay. Also big news this week, Emily, uh, we are launching the Hospitality Training Institute of Michigan. Our online courses start this week. What is the Hospitality Training Institute of Michigan? Lovingly referred to as the H Tim or just Tim. So it is a training institute for the industry and it's really a way to, it's a 12 week program for people who are already in the industry and want to find a pipeline upwards with, to, to grow your career within the industry, which is something that we will talk to Wesley about from Buddy's Pizza later in this episode, starting at a certain level and, and growing upwards. But HTIM, it's a 12 week program. We have hybrid classes and online classes, and it's really a solution we've created or supported in the creation of to gain retain and grow the workforce in this industry in Michigan. And it's really the first of its kind, I would say. Yeah, we're really proud of it. It, 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 is, it is our response to the workforce challenges that this industry has before us, not just acutely right now as we're coming out of the pandemic, but long-term, how do we address those needs? And, and, and part of that is going to need to, to demonstrate to a potential workforce that there are opportunities, that this is not just a job you have to have for now, it is a, an opportunity uh, for a career and you can grow and receive credentials that, that employers uh, respect and are looking for. And so I think this is our attempt in, in these tw- with the 12-week program specifically, it is an attempt to quick, quickly upskill those workers that have been elevated into positions that they may not be prepared for, frankly, and are making it challenging at your restaurant as people have, through the great resignation, uh, moved on to other industries, and you have seen other employees elevated to positions of assistant and actual manager that they aren't prepared for. This is going to give them the skill set to make sure that they, they can handle this new responsibility well. Uh, we're excited about it. It is something that we are communicating with the legislature and this administration as well of, of how can we help the hospitality industry quickly get back on its feet. Still 40,000 people, fewer working in this industry uh, than were before. And frankly, I think it ties into some of the labor, labor organizing uh, that we just talked about in the previous segment. Some education and some training and demonstration of opportunity might be able to prevent the idea that there's a need that your your, your staff needs to be formally organized to, to reach those types of opportunities. htim.com, htim.com. Now here's a question for you. What could you do with a cash infusion of more than $100,000? How might that help your business bounce back? The Michigan Restaurant and Lodging Association wants you to find out. Call the Restaurant Relief ERC Support Center at 888-371-8310. You'll get expedited filing for federal pandemic relief. Find out how much you qualify for by calling 888-371-8310 right now. 
For fork's sake, Justin, what's going on in Lansing right now with uh, government affairs? What's happening around the Capitol? Break it down for us. I think we can make this segment quick this week, Emily. It feels like a lot is forthcoming, but not that much happening. The legislature is just back this week after being uh, off for two weeks for the spring break recess. They will also be off next week for reasons that are unclear. But we're working with the legislature because there's a whole lot to get done. $74 billion budget for next year is still coming. Uh, that needs to be done soon. Uh, a one-time supplemental with several billions of dollars that have yet to be expended. Michigan, again, here's a reminder, stands almost alone not expending these dollars. Uh, and we have a lot of interest on behalf of the industry to make sure it, it can be supported and help it make its recovery. A question that listeners might be asking themselves right now is what is, I know that there's a lot in flux, but what could be the timeline on that? Is that pre-summer break or what should people anticipate potentially? That's a good question. I think because it's an election year, you're going to see the legislature get real itchy to get out there and start campaigning. And so if they are here past the first week of June at all, I would be surprised. Uh, That leaves a very short window, basically the month of May and what's left here uh, in April. We just said that they're not going to be here next week. So there's a lot that needs to get done in a short amount of time. We are meeting and having conversations with all of the legislators we need to and and those within the administration to help move our agenda, the industry's agenda, forward as as quickly as we can. Uh, But we're also going to Washington, D.C. in late April with several of our leaders from this industry uh, to to the public affairs conference for their National Restaurant Association. So several hundred restaurateurs from across the country meeting in D.C. We'll be meeting with several members of the Michigan delegation. I think we'll still be having conversations on the Restaurant Revitalization Fund. We do know that the House voted uh, and passed out a version of it last week. The Senate has it in its chamber to discuss. I, if I'm being brutally honest... There's not a lot of interest to go backwards on COVID financing and support of any industry, let alone specifically setting aside some dollars for this one. We're going to keep advocating and make the case clear that only one in three restaurants approximately receive these these dollars. And those two out of three that didn't are the ones you're seeing closing that right that the complications from the pandemic and the closure of this industry are still reverberating in the industry now. Uh, but if I'm being honest, it's a massive uphill battle to get the votes necessary in the U.S. Senate to, to get this done. So we want to start pivoting and having a conversation about what the future of this industry is and the, the, the support it's going to need to get back on its feet, its feet. A lot of that is workforce development oriented. We are very eager to have a conversation with Congress about a brand new piece of legislation, uh, the EWEA, that is the Essential Workers for Economic Advancement Act, creates a three-year visa for non-immigrant workers specifically tied to this industry. If you're familiar with the H-2B visas, uh, the shorthand is that people have been calling this essentially the H-2C visa, a visa uh, for non-immigrant workers, temporary in nature, uh, that can come and, and be a backbone of support for this industry because we are still so short uh, on the labor force necessary to meet the demand that uh, Americans and Michiganders are looking for. So I think it's an interesting conversation to start. I, I do, The workforce is going to be front and center in these conversations, and this is a tool in the toolbox uh, that we're eager to start having with, uh, with Congress. 
So a lot of things to get done, a lot of things happening in the next few weeks. On top of that, there are a couple of key deadlines here in Michigan coming up. Um, what are some of those? Yeah, the candidate filing deadline, uh, the all-important candidate filing deadline is April 19th. That is when we will know uh, the die will be cast. Who is going to be on the ballot? It's for governor on the Republican side. It looks like there are anywhere from 10 to 12 uh, that will turn in an adequate number of signatures to get themselves uh, on the ballot. That is a that is a robust primary. It's a lot. Uh, and so stay tuned uh, for to see how that is going to play out. We have conventions still coming for the attorney general on the Republican side, candidate, and as well as secretary of state. Uh, the Democratic slate is set. Uh, that's what happens when you have all three of those positions locked in. You move forward and see, seek re-election. Uh, so it, it'll be interesting as well to see who files for the Senate and the House seats when all is said and done because of the changing districts this year. It's it's really going to be a unique, it's going to be a very unique election cycle, not just because everything is up for election this year, but that we're doing it under new maps and frankly, under a very interesting political environment that we're that we're dealing with, that feels uh, somewhat somewhat unstable, both both domestically and and abroad. So it's going to be a lot for voters to digest in the coming months. Other deadline coming up is the ballot signature deadline, and something that is of interest to this industry. There is a potential for. Uh, what is called the Raise the Wage uh, initiative that would increase the minimum wage to $15 an hour by 2027. And then for those full-service restaurants who are listening, would eliminate the tip credit, uh, that tip credit that exists in 43 states right now. Uh, this will be the third attempt by a group to try to uh, eliminate Michigan from that list of 43 states. Uh, so something we are watching closely, they will need to turn in approximately 352,000 signatures of valid Michigan voters by June 1st. So that is coming up uh, as well. And that has a big impact uh, on the future of this industry. So something we're watching uh, very closely. Okay, I think that sums up for Fork's sake. Next up, we have uh, the chief brand officer from Buddy's Pizza joining us. Oh, that's going to be a fantastic interview. I look to welcome Wesley soon. We're welcoming Wesley Picula to uh, the podcast today. Wesley is chief brand officer of Buddy's Pizza. In 1964, his family migrated from Poland and lived in Hamtramck on Detroit's east side. He started working at Buddy's Pizza in 1975 at the age of 17 as a dishwasher and moved to other positions at the restaurant from there, busing, bar, waitstaff, in the kitchen. In 1981, upon graduating from Wayne State with a business degree, Wesley was promoted to a manager position and then again in 1982 to general manager. One year later, Wesley opened his first store in Livonia for Buddy's Pizza and from there really moved up the ranks to executive GM to vice president of operations, uh, where he spent 35 years in that role, then to COO and now currently chief brand officer of Buddy's Pizza. Uh, Wesley is involved in all the marketing, product development, site selection, design, and build out of all the locations of which there are many and growing, uh, and is married to his wife, Caroline, who he met at Buddy's back then, and they have a daughter named Ashley. So welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Wesley, I'm so excited. This is, this is, this is right in my wheelhouse. We're only six episodes into doing this podcast. 
And somehow we have talked about pizza, I think every single episode, it's not by design. We didn't sit in a meeting beforehand and go, you know what, let's focus every single podcast on pizza, but it's, it's just part of who we are in Michigan. I grew up in Southeast Michigan. You know, I love the buddies in Royal Oak on Woodward and went there a lot uh, as a kid and it showed. So I'm excited you're here today because we've been talking also a lot about Detroit style pizza specifically and what it is and what it isn't. Can you, can you first reflect back? Give me a, give me a history of buddies. Cause I think it is really interesting how it goes back, how it became what it is today. And then I, we're going to need you to weigh in and your expertise of, of what is Detroit style pizza and then what it is not. Sure. I would love to. And so where it all began was at Six Mount Kona in Detroit. There was a house there with a little storefront, probably in the 20s. Then rumor has it that between late 20s and early 30s, it was used as a blind pig, obviously during Prohibition. At some point, probably in the late 30s, it operated as a little place called Fern's Lunch. That was a house and then a little storefront with a little cafe thing going on. And somewhere in the late or early 40s, it got converted to a bar, um, the storefront, and then there were still residents behind it. Um, and then within like 45, 46, the residents portion of it disappeared and it became kind of a dining room kitchen. And there's a gentleman by the name of Gus Guerrero and his wife, Anna, who owned it in 46. And he ran it first as a little bar. And a lot of the customers that used to frequent the local lived in the area it was sort of an automotive kind of area where you had small tool and die shops. And before all the big groups that came in, as far as automotive suppliers, you had little guys all over the place. So it was an ethnic area. You had a lot of, you know, veterans that served in World War II. Customers had done time in Italy. You know, just, you know, the conversation was, hey, let's get something to eat here. Let's let's bring in some food and conversations went further. And then it was decided that, hey, maybe we should do pizza. So, uh, you know, Gus's wife, I think they were from Northern Italy, and they were used to working with product called the focaccia or sficcioni, which they call it, which was sort of like dough where you press meat in it, and then you drizzle it with maybe a little bit of cheese, a little bit of olive oil, and it's baked. So at the time, there's no square pans available, and there's nothing like that. So uh, again, folklore has it that some of the customers that were coming in there, in their tool and die shops, they had these drip trays or little scrap collectors. And there's a company called Dover Parkersburg. They used to make all these big industrial vats that would push through uh, factories and they would collect all the scrap metal, but they also had small ones. And there was a size 10 by 14 and there was a size 8 by 10. Originally, it was just a 10 by 14. And it was just a metal made out of blue steel. It was very inexpensive. Again, it was used as a drip tray and just a collector. So someone brought that in to say, hey, maybe you could try this. And again, as folklore has it, that's what they started with. And to this day, we use the same thing. And so the way the pizza was built, which is a lot different than what was traditionally round pizza at the time, was the, the, the square pan, or it's not even square, it's, that's what's funny about it. We call it square, but then it's actually a, a rectangle, but we'll call it a square. And so they first put the dough in, then they pressed the meat in, which was the pepperoni at the time, uh, put the cheese down, and then the sauce went on top of the cheese, which again goes back to the spiccione, which was sort of this 
a dough and then you press the meat, whatever you had in the house into it, you baked it and then the drizzle of olive oil. And that's how the pizza, the build out, you know, started was with that. And then again, in 53, it was sold to Big Jimmy and Little Jimmy Bonacorsi. And uh, in 1970, it was sold to the Jacob family, which I started with uh, Bill Jacobs and his family, Robert, who was the president of the company. And so from 1970 on, that's the group I worked for, but that's kind of it in a nutshell. That that sounds like the history of Detroit, all wrapped into pizza, all wrapped into square. Yeah, there's a lot of elements, (laughs) a lot of elements. I, I love that. I love that. How how did you actually come up with and when did it actually become become Buddies as as the official name? Probably in the early 50s. So uh, when Big Jimmy and Little Jimmy owned it, they were, Big Jimmy was Italian. He was a very sort of vivacious, just a bigger than life character. And so what happened is where they had the bar, then they built out to the side there called the card room. And what happened is a lot of the guys would come in from the neighborhoods and play Pinochle and they play some of the other Italian card games. Obviously all the arguments would take place in that room. And so it became buddies, buddies meaning people coming together. And then it was buddies rendezvous where the guys would come in, drink their little glass of red wine. I remember even when I was bartending, you know, you'd have the $2.50 jug of Krabari <laughs> Burgundy or Zinfandel and you'd have to pour it in a little glass and they would sit there and and play cards or play these Italian games uh, where they would, you know, with the hand games and there'd be arguments and fights. And so anyways, it was, they called it Buddy's Rendezvous at that point. And then the Jimmy's, uh, Big Jimmy, Little Jimmy ran it again until 1970 when they sold it. Wow. All right. So Detroit Style Pizza now is, is famous across the country. You know, it's a big deal when a major chain like Pizza Hut just grabs onto it and, and puts its own version out there. One might call it a bastardized version of, of Detroit style pizza. So it's it. How do you feel about the success of the concept? Uh, is it all good? Does it feel a little like, well, a lot of not Detroit style pizza out there going under the name? What, what, what are your thoughts on how popular uh, the theme of Detroit style pizza uh, has become. Yeah, I, yeah, I agree, Justin. It's a little bit of both, right? So if you, so at Buddy's, here's where it's, it's separate a little bit. So if you go to Cafe Dumont and you eat their bonnets, that is the birthplace, and that is going to be a specific product. With Buddy's, it's the same thing. I mean, when when we make pizza, we make it the same way we've been making it since. 1946, and some of the ladies that worked at Buddy's when the Jacobs family bought it had worked with Gus. So again, it was very specific to the pizza. It was the dough was made with salt water and yeast, and we use cake yeast, not fast rising yeast or anything. It's just sort of the same yeast you would use to make beer, right? So it was made that way. So there's no oil or additives to it. And then the dough would be made, the dough would be scaled to a certain size, then it would be pressed, and it would have to go through the proofing process, just like bread. And then you top it with you put the pepperoni down and the 100% brick cheese, and then the sauce that we use from Stanislaus has always been the same. So that's the way you build out the pizza. And then it's baked at high temperature because it takes a little while for the cheese to melt because it's brick cheese, not mozzarella. So, and then what you have out there now, and even through the years, right? So when I started at Buddy's through the years, there were many groups that started their own version of this pizza or people that might've worked in a kitchen and things like that. And then some were successful, some closed. Then later on, as the years went on, there's more that came in. And of course, because Buddies did the 1980 convention 
the Republican convention at Cobo when Ronald Reagan ran, we did the food service for all the press corps. So there's a lot of hype about the pizza back then. And so Buddy's sort of kept the, the name and the style of pizza out there. It was always Buddy's Pizza. Now it's referred to as Detroit style, which makes sense. Obviously, we're honored and, and, and thrilled that Detroit can, can you know, we sort of give it to Detroit, right? Why not? We've been, we've been there forever. And so now you have different groups that created their own version. But unfortunately, with some groups, it's not exactly what you would like to see as the Detroit style. And some customers have pushed back on it. But, you know, pizza is one of these interesting things. You know, no matter, there's no such thing as a bad pizza, right? (laughs) Agreed. Agreed. So, so, So it's kind of exciting to see the whole movement out there. But we like to stay in our lane because we are the original and we make it authentic. So our selling point always was Detroit's original square deep dish pizza since 1946. And now we've sort of taken on the moniker of Detroit style. You know, I always call it buddy slash Detroit style, just like Uno started Chicago style. You sort of, and then Malmati's came out of that. And then you have now buddies, but you know, it's a mixed bag. If they do it right and they do it great, and the city gets recognition because once you put Detroit in it, it's exciting to see Detroit get a positive sort of vibe from this instead of the typical Detroit bashing that goes on. Yeah, it's, it's great to see a new uh, export coming out of the city. That's right. Besides cars, right? And That's Motown. Right. <laughs> so Wesley, more specific to uh, you and your work in the hospitality industry, you've had a long career as we outlined with one company with Buddy's Pizza. So what made you want to start there originally and then stick around for 45 years? Oh, sure. So, you know, my mom had worked there years prior. Our coach had taken us there in, I think, 68 for our fifth and sixth grade basketball team. So I was familiar with Buddies. It was it, it was legendary in the 60s. I mean, there was three restaurants there, two restaurants, Buddies and Turtle Soup that were just, they, they owned that corner. So it was a big deal in that area. So obviously to get a job that was really hard, you know, I, I, I applied with my friend, you know, because again, we heard that the tips were great and this and that. So when I applied with my friend, my friend got the job. I didn't get the job. And my friend was going on a trip with his family. So the manager called me and said, you know, you want a job? I said, sure. He goes, you know how to wash dishes? I said, no. He goes, well, you're washing them anyways. So they stuck me back there. And of course I did the best I could. I got a lot of help. And so yeah, I fell in love with it. You know, it was one of those things where you, in the beginning, I kind of felt sorry for it because the space was like three foot by three foot. And we had a restaurant that was lined up from 5.30 to 1.30 in the morning. You know, that's how busy this place was. So you stood there in that corner for probably for six months. I toiled uh, there. And I just, I loved, I sort of didn't want to be part of the industry because I thought people were so hard. I thought if I graduated from college, I would have find an easier job, like a desk job. <laughs> so that didn't turn out that way. But so I loved I loved everything that the restaurant business had to offer. And, you know, it, it's it's what pulls you in is really the people. And I look at the industry today and it it, it just kind of saddens me a little bit, you know, knowing that, you know, people are walking away from the industry. And, and that bothers me a little bit. I actually saw a program uh, a couple of days ago, uh, one of the business networks, and they were, and the CEO of Chick Fil A was there. I'm sorry, it was Chipotle, but he said, "You know, we're actually a more, we're, we're actually 
more staffed than, than pre-pandemic right now. And that was so different than what I hear out there. And I said to myself, well, they must be doing something right because there's a lot of groups out there that are just struggling for staff and just can't seem to find the right formula. And I just look back at my career and I just think about the things that I've learned and, and how I was inspired by so many people along the way. And not people that you would normally be inspired by, but really the, the, the rank and file, what I call the employee base, the, the dishwashers, the busboys, the servers, the bartenders, the single moms, and all the people that came into our industry because it was easy to get a job. You know, you could come in and managers would hire you. They would train you. They would work with you. They would facilitate your schedules. They would do all those things. And I think along the way, I think it, it, it lost that. For, I think operators sometimes lose that component of the business. I think we should be selling the life experience as opposed to just a sign-on bonus. And, and a sign-on bonus wouldn't have got me to work at Buddies for sure. I would, even back then, I would work for Buddies because I, it was fun, it was exciting. And I was part, and I was proud to be part of a legendary restaurant like that in our community. And so, you know, just in general terms, like you look at companies like Chick-fil-A and you look at other companies, they do an amazing job with their employees. I remember when I was coming up, Chuck Mirror in our area, you know, one of the greatest operators ever. And, and when you worked for the Chuck Muir organization, that was a badge of honor. Chuck Muir put everything into his employees and he grew his employees from the time they started to where they became, you know, VP of ops. And a lot of his people started there from the ranks. Uh, uh, including, including my mom, thing. including my mom, Wesley. She was a server at Charlie's Crab in Troy when, when I was actually born. So there you go. Ties and to listen, the industry right there. Those are, again, if you're currently in this industry right now, I think looking back a little bit, sometimes I reread old books, right? Sometimes I go back, like there's a lot of new stuff written, but then I go back to One Minute Manager, right? I, I go back to that and I say to myself, these are the greatest books ever written. I mean, if you follow what that, what Kenny Blanchard was trying to say, and you create that culture within your organization, uh, at every level, right? Not just at the highest levels. Where restaurants break down, and I think where a lot of managers fail, is they don't, they don't, they stop doing the basics. They, they become such firefighters that they don't have face time for their people. And so when you lose that component, again, I say you become a commodity. And if you become a commodity, it's a price war. It, 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 there, there has to be other value to that job. That has that a person has to be presented than just his hourly rate. And I ran every one of the stores in many different cities, whether it's Livonia, Dearborn, Clement, whatever. Here was the issue. There were competitors that would open up through the years, and many of them through the 80s, through the 90s. I rarely, rarely lost an employee for an hourly rate increase that someone was coming in and saying, well, hey, they're going to pay me 50 cents for an hour. I said, well, listen, if that's what your job's about, then you may want to take it. I never bargained with anybody because I always felt as a manager, and this was my own thinking, that what I was creating was something special. And if you didn't see value in that, then probably not the right person for me in this restaurant because I spent the time with my employees and I feel to, to this day 
that if people just kind of understood the business, which is a people business, and, and really stay true to that, not just put it in training material, but actually live it every single day, I think, the, I think people would come back to our industry. I think people would realize there's something special here. It's fun. It's exciting. Uh, it, 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 it changes your life in many ways. I mean, you grow up in this business because you're working with people. And that's the hardest thing in, 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 in life is how you, how you balance all these people relationships. And the restaurant industry teaches you a lot of that because of who you're waiting on, who you're serving, who you're working with. There's just this constant churning of having to adapt yourself to different environments. Oh, you're so right. And that's so well said. This is a very human-based industry that sometimes feels, to, to use your word, uh, that the workforce has become a commodity and the industry is feeling the, the harsh reality of what happens when you take this human industry and make it a commodity. And that is a narrative that has been persistent coming out of the pandemic and something we're going to have to work really hard to move beyond. And I think you articulated it really well. So don't be surprised if that is the, the snippet that we try to repopulate and, and use in, in multiple segments, because I think you encapsulate what is special about working in this industry, why you stayed for, for 45 years and help make our point that this doesn't have to be just your first job, that there really are real opportunities. You started as the dishwasher and are now uh, the, the chief brand officer making big decisions for a, a big company, an iconic company that is uh, expanding, which is where we want to go next, because you guys have really been aggressive in your expansion in recent years. And so I want to I want you to tell me about how that how the pandemic impacted that, because it feels like you were just about to launch into a whole lot of openings as the pandemic hit. I think the Okemos store, which is so close to my house, was originally slated for a 2020 open. Uh, how did you deal with the uncertainty of that time period? And, and then what what does that mean for what's next for buddies? Right. So pre-pandemic, there is there was definitely an aggressive growth plan. But once the pandemic hit, we had Lansing already in the works. We had Troy in the works. A lot of the material, the equipment and everything was already purchased. So we didn't have those delays. But then you had to make a real hard choice when we had Lansing and we had Troy. How do you, you want to open during the pandemic? So the pandemic obviously pushed everyone into takeout. And buddies had already been doing takeout in all the restaurants for since its inception. So we decided to open just for takeout. And so that kind of hurt because people never got in these new communities. They never got the buddy's experience. They did get the pizza and they did get the salad and they did, we did limited menus, but the whole concept of going in and dining with family and sharing the experience never happened. So, and then after that, it was a little bit of a slowdown and then there sort of a reset, you know, what, what is going to be the model going forward and okay was already in the plan because we love that area. It's a great family community. Obviously, it's close to state. Um, the Meridian Mall was there. We looked at that area for many, many years because, again, we love the community. Um, I think we just ranked as a, one of the top cities in Michigan. So, you know, families and buddies go hand in hand. So we opened that. We had to wait because a lot of material got you know backlogged and things like that. We did where you were able to hire 100 employees, which we're excited about. Um, this is recently. So, um, and then now we're going more the takeout route. We have Clarkson opening up on Monday. We have a store in Chesterfield. And so I think where the thinking is now is let's open up some takeouts. Let's get Buddy's Pizza out to some of these communities that 
have not had it or maybe had it when they lived in Detroit and now they're out in the suburbs and things like that. So maybe we do a takeout till we figure out, you know, because again, everyone's tossing around smaller footprints and whether there's going to be staffing and this and that. So we are planning on expanding not only maybe a few more stores in Michigan, but also to some neighboring states and to see, you know, how the brand is received. But I think with where Detroit style pizza is, if you look around the country, whether it's, you know, V13 and 3 or Blue Pan or places in Toronto, there's places all over. There's a place in New Mexico I was just reading about. And everyone's just picking up what they can about this style of pizza and throwing it together and, you know, doing something of the kind in New York. I mean, they had lions, tigers, and squares opened up. And so it is exciting to see that buddies definitely is going to grow. I mean, it would be a shame to have a 76 year old brand that really started the trend, not to, you know, give people the original. And that would be what we would present is the original, not, again, a version where the pep goes on top and you're using mozzarella cheese and, you know, this dough has been modified, things like that. We want to, we want to present the original when we go into markets. People deserve it, Wesley. They deserve it. I'm excited to hear about that expansion, but it go, your expansion hits on some points that I, I really wanted to delve into next, because I've been fascinated by a stat that we talked about earlier in this podcast. The Restaurant Leadership Conference uh, is meeting this week in Phoenix. One of the big stats that came out of one of their presentations was the dramatic change of how people are getting restaurant food these days. Of the 150 largest restaurant brands, uh, pre-pandemic, 66% of their sales were derived from dine-in operations. And that number is down to 38% right now. That's 2022. That's not peak pandemic when there were closures. That is right now. So that feels like a changing part of the industry. But I was heartened to see the Okemos opening. It is a large footprint. I don't know exactly the square footage, but it is a welcoming uh, sized restaurant that says, people, come enjoy this product here on the premise. Enjoy the, the experience of being here. Where does that fit into your growth pattern? Uh, do you think the future for Buddies is going to be more into smaller footprint places like the to-go places you talked about? Or, or are you interested in building the Okemos style restaurants with a, with a bigger footprint? Yeah, probably. Okemos is like 7,000 square feet. There's like, it seats 275. And again, that is huge. We by sort of took a, Yeah, we took a long view of that area only because we know how strong Okemos is and is going to continue to grow. You have two GM plants there. Yeah, you know, great school system families. And again, I do believe this. This is my own personal belief that people will come back. I've seen too many cycles in this industry. I've seen big cycles and small cycles. And I do believe that people want to be with people. There's just humanity is humanity. I don't care what the current hiccups are. I believe people are still want to be together. So Will we open up big stores like that? Maybe in a certain market. I mean, look at Portillo's. I mean, there's concepts that are just big concepts. And as time goes on, I do believe people will come together. Buddies, I think we, we, we're pizza and salad. You know, those are our key items. And so takeouts can do very well in that segment. So we'll continue to, to look at that. We may build smaller restaurants, maybe something that's along the lines of a Panera, Chipotle, where you come in and there's limited service and get food, but you can still sit at tables, you can still congregate and have fun, you know, maybe have Motown music going through the space, you know, things that are just Detroit centric. But again, 
and I know, Justin, you've been in this industry, you represent the industry, but you know yourself, we are the most amazing industry in terms of being able to modify and adapt to changing environments. I mean, when the state makes you an essential employee and all of a sudden you have to redo your whole operation, you have to do, go from normal, traditional restaurant operations, we had to go to you know, all of a sudden we went to online ordering. All of a sudden we went to DoorDash. All of a sudden we went to curbside. All of a sudden people are running food out. We have to buy, you know, raincoats and we have to bring in new apps and new this and that. And so now you still have some of that. But it, as I see the business slowly evolving right now is dining rooms definitely are starting to come back. The carryout is dropping a little bit. Now it's moving into the dining room. Where it will shake out at some point, who knows? I mean, Traditionally, Buddy's was probably $65.35 volume carryout to dine-in. So carryout was a big part of the Buddy's um, build-out anyways. So for us, but but here's the thing. Here, here's what it is about Buddy's, which is what we want. It's Buddy's rendezvous, right? Which means, hey, let's get everybody together. Let's get grandma, the parents, the kids grandkids and let's go order a bunch of pizzas and a bunch of salads and some buddy brew and let's sit at the table and laugh and, and have fun and order what we like on our pizzas and like you said earlier uh you've been talking about pizza for how long well there's a reason for people love pizza <laughs> well the winslow family is going to be doing just that in large numbers uh this weekend so we're, lo- we're looking forward to we have not been to the okamas location yet but every time we drive by it is packed so congratulations uh, on that open. I thank know, you, I know we're going gonna to get you out of here on, on the special. This is going to be an individual question just for you and your personal taste, but it's an important one. Emily's got it. We have never had a guest uh, more equipped to answer this question, but we try to ask it on every, every episode. So if you can only have two toppings on your pizza for the rest of your life, only two, what would they be? Uh, pepperoni and garlic. Oh, and garlic. And with no hesitation. Yeah, that, that is a man who knows what he likes. He's got that answer ready on lock. And, and so garlic, so why garlic and not, let's say, another vegetable or doubling down on the meat? Why go, why go heavy on the garlic? It, the, when garlic gets roasted in the bake process, you know, when you have the pizza, you have the pepperoni, and then you have the garlic, and then you have the gar- garlic roasted, it creates a very sort of a rich, deep, where you've got the pepperoni sort of doing a spicier little thing. And then you got the garlic. It's, it's authentic Italian. And because with Buddy's, the crust is, it's not, it looks thick, but it's actually light. But when you have that little bit of extra crust, you need a little bit more of that flavor. It balances out the pizza between the sauce, the pepperoni, and the garlic. And again, the garlic roast. So it's, it's a sweeter kind of taste than just like bitter garlic. That's a good answer. I might, I might be changing my, my personal opinion. Justin, just think about this. I've been eating this pizza, right? (laughs) Since probably 1968. So I, my go-to pizza that I normally order, believe it or not, is dough, very light cheese. I put red onion, anchovy, garlic, pepperoni on top, right? Tiny bit of sauce. I drizzle the dressing on top. And then that's my pizza. It's almost like a bruschetta kind of thing and it it's very intense in flavor but because you don't put as much cheese on it you get more of the balanced flavor of the toppings because the cheese is like putting a lot of butter in something it create it kind of 
masks the taste a little bit. So that's why this needs to be on the menu. Then I guess this would just be on the menu as the Wesley. Well, it's it's a crunchier crust because you're actually putting less cheese on it. So the crust actually crispens up like bruschetta. It's that kind of texture. I love it. Wesley, this has been a fantastic conversation. Thank you for your time. Thank you for being an excellent ambassador for our industry and a model for for those who are considering getting in or have left and we want to come back to this industry, why this is a special place to be. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And I I love, as you can see, talking about our industry and buddies. And uh, Justin, thank you so much, Emily. It It was really my pleasure. Perfect. Thanks. Well, we will, uh, we will talk soon. Wesley, you have my number now. You have myself. Call anytime we can be helpful for you. Thank you so much.